0: I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. Lydia Williams' story will captivate you. For 15 years now, Lydia has been the tough and intimidating goalkeeper for the Matildas, making her Australian debut as a shy teenager in 2005. She's played all over the world, World Cups and Olympics, but the jet-setting international life of a professional athlete is a far call from the barefoot young Lydia from the outback played in the red dirt, lived off the land and had a close connection to her indigenous culture. Lydia has this resilience and humility which is no doubt a product of her upbringing, with her bush pastor father and Wall Street corporate turned missionary mother. She's faced racism and discrimination, the heartbreaking loss of her father, and has seen firsthand a massive shift in the women’s game. Lydia’s sporting story starts in the Western Australian desert.
1: So um, being in a country town, Kalgoorlie in Western Australia, obviously you play every sport under the sun. So <laughs> it was little athletics, um, footy, uh, basketball. AFL. AFL, L-0s. yep. yep. Um, and, and football. Mm. I actually learned how to kick a, a footy first out in the desert with Indigenous kids. So mm. that was kind of, I think, my passion, especially being in WA. You know, everyone followed either the Dockers or the mm-hmm. Eagles, and I was a passionate Eagles supporter. Right, <laughs> yep, cool. Um, And so, yeah, I I played everything under the sun, and I really enjoyed being outside, so it was mainly football and footy that I really enjoyed. Mm. Um, and then my mum got a job in Canberra, so we all packed up and moved, which was the most terrible thing at the time for me. Mm. Um, So, yeah, when we moved over... I had to join some sporting teams since I didn't know anyone. Mm -hmm. And her words exactly, you didn't have any friends, so let's join you (laughs) up in some sporting teams. (laughs) So basketball and football it was because there is no such thing as AFL in Canberra. Well,
0: I'm going to go on to Canberra, but I just want to go back to Kalgoorlie because that is just a fascinating way to, to, to grow up and a fascinating area to grow up in. Your dad, he's Indigenous, but your mum's American, isn't she? So how did those two worlds collide?
1: Yeah, um, well, mum grew up, um, her side of the family is a military family in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she grew up in Oklahoma, uh, then moved to Boston and finally New York to work on Wall Street. Wow. Uh, yeah, as an accountant's assistant. So she was right in the middle of hustle and bustle 70s New York City. Um, So she was doing that with her life and then kind of um, started going to church and didn't really know what she wanted to do. Mm. Um, And there was a missions trip actually to uh, Australia to work with Indigenous women and communities, and she just kind of was like, oh, yeah, that's my calling. So she came over to Australia for three months. And then my dad's side of the family, his background is obviously Indigenous and Mm -hmm. his family is a part of the Stolen Generation. Mm. Uh, So he was raised by his grandparents. His uh, grandmother got taken to a mission Mm. um, with his two half-siblings. Yeah. And then his grandfather hid him um, from the police when they come into town. So because he was half, we're not really sure who his dad is at all. Um, So he was half, so lighter-skinned, obviously, you know, he was – the one that was, I guess, targeted really to be taken to mission. So yeah, great-grandpa hid him and kind of raised him and everything. So he was a part of the first Aboriginal kids to go to school as well.
0: Your grandfather? Uh, your my father? dad. Yeah.
1: Um, so he went for, I think it was three years and left because it was just the racism was terrible. So he never got an education, never got a job, um, turned to alcohol. Mm. And then a, a missionary came into town into Kalgoorlie and, um, spoke to him and he just kind of felt, you know, rejuvenated and, um, he became a Christian and then moved all around like Western Australia preaching and helping out Indigenous people.
0: I heard him being described as a bush pastor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He was pretty, um, he he just traveled around. There was no, he didn't really have a actual Mm. settlement. He just, you know, slept on floors and tents in his car with his dog and his guitar. (laughs) So he basically just was kind of like nomadic and just went everywhere just trying to help people and bring the same level of hope that he found um, through the missionary to to others.
0: Did he ever talk about the Stolen Generation to you and did he pass on what that was like?
1: Um, No, not really. I think he really wanted to shy away from that. He did explain to me a lot of times, obviously, I'd walk with him, and there was, you know, racist words thrown at him or I remember going through a few places like a drive through to get coffee for him and, mm. um, you know, a hot chocolate for me. <laughs> and he would have to explain why he got shortchanged and why do we have to go back to the store to ask for the right amount of money back. Wow. Um, so for me, that was a bit. Uh, interesting. I didn't really understand. Did it. I say? Did you
0: understand what was happening?
1: No, I just knew him as my dad, and yeah. I'm obviously very light skinned compared to how he he looked. Mm. Um, so for me, it was like, why is this happening when he's my dad? Can't mm. you see that we're like the same person, and you're not saying that to me? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was very interesting.
0: Your mum. So they were part of the same missionary together and well, fell in love.
1: Uh, Actually, so my dad heard about my mum, that this American (laughs) woman came over to Australia to work with Indigenous people. So he was like, okay, let's have a look. Um, So he actually knew about my mum before and they had one meeting, one chance meeting, and he introduced himself and they started chatting and then that was it. They exchanged addresses Mm -hmm. and she had to go back to America. And they wrote to each other for four months. And he the only way that my dad kinda learnt how to read was through comic books. So he loved the Phantom. And the the Phantom's sweetheart is actually called Diana, which is my mum's name. Yeah. So he would sign off The Phantom, (laughs) which my mum like showed me those uh, (laughs) letters, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you two are both so corny, Um, and she
0: still got them. That's awesome. Yeah, so that must be beautiful to read. Oh,
1: it's a bit cheesy. I'm not, I'm not ready for that yet. (laughs) (laughs) I think she still reads them. I'm, I'm just like, I'm just gonna wait. (laughs) Right, right. Um, but yeah, so they wrote to each other for four months, and he proposed to her through a letter. And oh, wow. so she said yes and packed up her life and moved to
0: Australia. I hear as well they had their honeymoon in a cave
1: yes, as well. For two nights. That's and a bit then, different to, yeah. Yeah, mum was like, we need to leave oh, after life. two nights. But um, <laughs> my, my dad actually, they had their wedding in a dried creek bed yep. in Western Australia, which was a site of an Aboriginal massacre. Wow. And he believed that if there's something you know, heartbreaking, something beautiful can come out of it. Oh, wow. So everyone came there with, you know, all these, their dogs, their stray dogs and swiping away flies and everything (laughs) and had their wedding on a, a dried creek bed and then went to a cave for two nights and he swept it out, put a mattress in there, some oh, candles nice. and the dogs, <laughs> and the dogs. <laughs> under the stars. And then <laughs> mum was like, we need a hotel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've had enough of this. Yeah. What a beautiful story. What a, an incredible man. Um, I want to talk about your dad um, a little bit further, but for you growing up in the outback, I want to know a little bit more about what that was like. How different was that to, to other kids' upbringings?
1: Yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was like now that I think about it, I'm like not many people do it nice. at all. But being in Kalgoorlie, there's just a vast Nullarbor Plain drive that you can take. Um, also the drives to Alice Springs where we'd always go every year for mm. a convention. Um, so we travel all w- the way through to, I guess, you know, Ayers Rock and um, to Adelaide and Cooper Pedy. So we do that every year. Um so I got to be on the road a lot with my mm. parents and during that time kangaroos are everywhere so you know you kind of they hop out and you hit them but we'd <laughs> always check if there's joeys. Yeah. And then dad never let food go to waste so we'd tie up the kangaroo to our front bull bar and <laughs> take it to the next community town and they'd be like okay it's dinner for everyone. Wow. So wow. yeah we we used to travel around and I didn't think anything that it was out of the norm. Yeah. I knew it was something, like, special, but I I was like, oh, I'm still doing schoolwork.
0: Um, I was going to say, were you homeschooled during that time? Yeah, Mum yeah. and
1: Another Life was actually a school teacher. Right. Um, So she got all the work from teachers before we left and mm-hmm. I'd be doing, like, a little journal of maths and English and mm-hmm. science. Cool. Um, and then kind of, like, showing my travels of where we go. Yeah, So it'd right. be at least a month um, that we'd be kind of on the road for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me it was like, it, it was fun. I got to learn a lot and, I mean, I'm an only child so mm-hmm. when they were doing their thing I had to kind of make friends and, you know, play with animals and mm. play sport. So I was always kind of, I was never bored.
0: What do you reckon were the greatest lessons um, learnt from having that kind of lifestyle, travelling around and having to find your own fun? But what was the greatest lessons you learned from that lifestyle of having your parents as these missionaries and doing that?
1: I think it was learning off them and, you know, hindsight, I don't, now that I I know about it more, I can kind of reflect on it. But dad not having any money uh, or having any kind of real income, um, obviously mum was the the breadwinner, so Mm. she would have, you know, $20 for me and dad to kind of like get dinner that night or, or whatever it was and he'd split it and see, you know, his um, cousin or someone on the road that was like worse off than him and he'd just, you know, give that $10 to them mm. and be like, we're fine, we can split a meal or,
2: mm.
1: you know, we, we'll just have like chips or get like fish and chips or something
2: Yeah,
1: like where we're okay with what we have. This person doesn't have anything.
0: Yeah,
1: And just at the time I was like, why? I want food. And <laughs> now looking back at it, it was just like we, we were o- always okay. Yeah, yeah. For everything that we've gone through where we were always provided, we had enough, And just seeing people that didn't have enough, just my dad's humility towards them. Mm. Um, But then, you know, my mum obviously coming from a completely different background, how Mm. she integrated into something that not a lot of people would do, Mm. you know, give up Wall Street to come to Australia Mm. um, with no other job really except missionary work. Um, In the 80s
0: and 90s. Yeah, Yeah. and
1: just seeing how she just kind of was – humble and listened and completely integrated herself into Indigenous culture. And, I mean, now some of her best friends are those people that she met all those years ago. Yeah. And, you know, we live in a, a nice house in Canberra and, mm. you know, she's healthy and safe, but it's just like that's, you know, something that we're really blessed to, to have and grateful for.
0: Did you have an appreciation for your Indigenous culture and that kind of upbringing when you were young or did that appreciation come a bit later for you?
1: Um I it's been kind of up and down. So it's definitely when I was younger and living in Kalgoorlie, I like I loved it. Mm. I got to travel out in the desert. Um everyone knew me by my tribal name which is Yulkari.
0: Cool. Um yep. so,
1: you know, we go out there and be like, oh Yulkari's here. So <laughs> And explain that to me. Um so it was given to me my tribe and where we kinda grew up and was from I guess is there's a place called Warburton and there's mm-hmm. a place called Warakuna. Um, so that's Central Desert, mm-hmm. um, in the Gibson Desert. So um they actually gave me my middle name. Um, so I have my, my dad's grandma great well, grandma's name, which is Grace, so it's Lydia Grace Yulkari Williams. Cool. So growing up in the desert, you know, I was kind of famous, really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but everyone knew me by my, my tribal name. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that was really special. Did you still have that American cultural influence in your life as well growing up
1: yeah every um Christmas uh we'd have kangaroo tail soup um (laughs) and damper and then mum would make a pumpkin pie yeah (laughs) so um she brought that to our family and so all the cousins and aunties and uncles would get together and Mum would make about three pies and then Dad would get (laughs) kangaroo tail from somewhere and we'd bring it over and they just loved it. It was like, what is this? (laughs) What is this pumpkin pie? So um, that was her number one requested meal for sure.
0: (laughs) Did you face racism growing up? Was that something that you had to deal with? Yeah.
1: um, I think, you know, once I kind of went back to Kalgoorlie and had to get back into, I guess, school and not be so Tribal and um, out. What th- age was that? Uh, probably when I was eight and nine. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously I look white, so, mm. you know, my dad picking me up and people not knowing him, you know, obviously there's going to be comments of, oh, I didn't know that's your dad mm. or you don't look like him or, you know, back then it was called half-caste because mm. I wasn't really dark and I wasn't really white like my mum because, mm. you know, when she'd speak it'd be an American accent. Mm. So people were like, wait, what's going on? yeah. Uh, so I definitely faced a lot back then. Mm. Um, also didn't help that I was a tomboy and, you know, didn't dress up or do girly things. So, Mm. you know, I was a little bit grubby, (laughs) (laughs) I guess, but I was a bush kid. So I just loved being outside and yeah, I definitely had a a few obstacles, I guess, that wasn't just racism. It was, you know, a few things that kind of made me different. And I guess I was naive about it Mm. because it didn't affect me all that much in terms of, you know, I felt, I guess, persecuted against. Mm. It was more I felt like I didn't belong. Mm. I didn't really have a sense of identity. Yeah. And that was just probably more confusion rather than, you know,
0: sadness or anything like that. Let's talk about sport. When did soccer come into your life?
1: Yeah, well, I obviously started playing back in Kalgoorlie. Uh, It wasn't really that big. I mean, it was, Mm. I guess, more organized than, than footy because of you know, there wasn't enough girls to play
2: mm.
1: football or footy. um. So it was like, oh, soccer slash football, you can kind <laughs> of <laughs> have both girls and boys or mm. there's enough for just a girls team. So that was, I guess, more organised mm. than playing footy. Uh, And it wasn't until we moved to Canberra that I was like, oh, this is actually like a competition. I actually have to like <laughs> really focus if I want to play this sport. And we came late. So I was like, oh, you know, mum's like, we need to join you up in teams. So I was like, okay. And then she's like, well, the, here's a the problem. Registration's shut, so they're letting you join, mm. but you can be in Division 4 and play wherever you want, or you can be in Division 1 where the only position left is a goalkeeper. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll go on goals because we'll rotate, and I know how to a catch. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So we joined up in Division 1. Needless to say, I never played on the field ever again. <laughs> Is that right? You never <laughs> yeah.
0: played another position? No, that was
1: it. And, I mean, there's this huge competition in um Canberra called the Kanga Cup, and I remember that playing that in my first year, and I saved a penalty, mm. which was unheard of because I was like, it's my first year of, like, really big goals, and yeah. I don't have a goalkeeper coach. So here we go, and I, I saved it, and we won the comp. <laughs> and then my coach, I remember him coming up to me and being like, you're a goalkeeper through and through. You're yeah. not leaving. And I was like, oh, no.
0: So how old were you back then when you were put first put in goalkeeper?
1: Oh, I was 12. 12 yep. and never played another position. No. And it
0: was because you were good that they didn't or it was because no one else wanted to go there? I
1: think it was a little bit of both. Yeah. I think it was no one else wanted to do it and then they were like, oh, she's actually kind of good. Yeah. So why should we rotate? <laughs> um. So, yeah, I just got stuck with it.
0: When did soccer then start getting serious for you? Was it during the Kanga Cup or what was it?
1: Um, I think it was, there was a a schoolgirls tour back when, you know, it was just like if you're old enough you pay an X amount of money and go on a trip with, you know, all these random girls Mm -hmm. from different schools around Canberra. And it must have been when I was 14 and I went to China.
0: You went to China for?
1: It was just a tournament against some other Chinese schools and you just. Paid for it and went. So, wow. for you know, for us it was like a lot of money. Yeah. Um, Had to fundraise quite a bit. Had to mm. get help from a lot of places. Uh, and I guess it was like a trip of a lifetime mm. and I had the opportunity and then my parents were like, yeah, you need to do it. So I went. And that was probably when I realized I was like, wow, this is really cool that, you yeah. know, I can do this. Yeah. And then, you know, soon after it was obviously the 2000 Olympics. And I got to go to a game in Canberra. I think it was like Sweden versus Nigeria or something Mm -hmm. random. I was like, "What these big ladies?" I was like, (laughs) "But they're playing! Like they get to travel the world and play." Yeah. And then I was like, "That's kind of cool." Yeah. And obviously Kathy Freeman, you know, raced, and I was like, "I want to do that." Yeah. That's what I Really want to do. Yeah. Yeah, Because I've been watching her race. Um, gosh, since like '96, I think it was the Commonwealth Games. Mm. Um, and I remember. Having a VHS and watching, like, <laughs> having, oh, <all>, yeah, rewind. <laughs> and, right. and there's like all these people, like, there's kids listening, this not knowing and what a VHS it, is. It, yeah. <laughs>
0: it's a videotape.
1: Yeah. So I just watched the Commonwealth Games over and over again. Wow. And
0: Kathy Freeman. Yeah. Yeah. Did you feel connected to her? She was like an Indigenous athlete, an Indigenous Australian as well.
1: Yeah. Cause that was the first kind of like Indigenous, Indigenous athlete, a female that mm. I actually saw. Um, And could relate to. Um, Obviously, we had a few Eagles players come that I, you know, saw in Kalgoorlie, but it was never any females. And I was like, wow, this is kind of cool that she's done this.
0: Yeah. But you, you made your Matilda's debut when you were 17. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Take me back to that day. What was that
1: like? Well, I've been in camp since I was 16. So (laughs) I've been a part of the squad for 16 years now, which is absurd in itself. (laughs) And then, um, It wasn't until I actually went on that trip that I was like, this is, like, the real deal. Mm. Like, these, like, women dream about this moment to, Mm. like, they've been actually since they were eight thinking about playing for the Matildas. And for me it was like, oh, the Matildas, cool, (laughs) until I was 17 because I I just had no idea. Yeah. I was just kind of in that naive kind of, like, frame of mind of, like, oh, this is cool, this is a great opportunity, be Mm. grateful for it. And then when we went over to, I think it was a two-month tour that we went to, and we went to China, Japan, and South Korea. And I got to play uh, against uh, a club team, which they filled the stadium anyway. And I was like, this is crazy that, like, it's just a club team versus Australia. Mm -hmm. And then that's when I got to see my first real games live, and then I actually got to play against South Korea. We lost, but (laughs) it was a good learning experience that I was like, wow, this is, like, the real deal that we get to travel the world and play this sport. And people love it.
0: Being a goalkeeper, there's a lot of pressure on you.
1: It sure is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What's been, do you have a most crushing moment being a goalkeeper that haunted you for a a long time?
1: Um, I had a really hard time in letting mistakes go when I was younger. Mm. Probably from Oh, age of fifteen to maybe eighteen. Mm. Um, it really it weighed on me a lot when I, you know, it, a game would be lost or I'd make a mistake, and I didn't. I, I'm my harshest critic. Mm. It doesn't matter anyone out there.
0: But that's amplify when you're the goalkeeper, yeah. surely. Like,
1: yeah. So I had a really hard time with like letting things go. Yeah. Um. So that's probably been the one thing that I've learned most out, out of my position is how to be really resilient mm. and. I mean, the worst thing about it is I think when you go through something hard in life, I think that helps you. Mm. And, you know, I never want it to happen again. And if, you know, I could redo it, obviously mm. I would. But I think with everything that's happened in my life that's been tragic, it's actually helped me to be a better goalkeeper mm. in terms of mentally, being mentally strong, being able to, to bounce back and be resilient. I think that's that's been the major thing that's kind of helped me.
0: Do you thrive on penalty shootouts?
1: Absolutely not. I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like them at all. Even though I might seem it, I'm just like, oh, please, someone score. It's a 99th minute.
0: Oh, uh, <laughs> so, I can't imagine the pressure from a penalty shootout being a goalkeeper.
1: Yeah. I mean, luckily the pressure isn't on me that much, but um, yeah, I definitely don't like them.
0: What was the biggest difference cuz you're you're in a really unique position where you've seen your sport and your women's game go through massive change, massive development really really quickly. But looking back on those first few years of playing the Matildas, what was the biggest difference that stands out now for what you guys had to go through to what it's like for you guys now?
1: Oh gosh, probably that we had to wash our undies. <laughs> 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 um no, it was, you know, we...
0: I hope you did wash your undies Explain yeah, oh, yeah, that. <laughs> bit, yeah,
1: but like hand washing them? Well, that's a different uh, thing in itself. No, it was probably just, there There was nothing. Like we, we obviously got um, compensated for going over, but it was just like X amount a day, you'll get it at the end of the trip and then you, that's it, that you see mm-hmm. nothing. And, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't a lot. It was, you know, for... A month long trip, maybe it was like three thousand dollars. Yeah, and obviously taxed, and then yeah, you get that lump sum in your bank. Yeah, um, and then in the meantime, you have to figure it out. Mm. Uh, but it, you know, it was the little things. It was, you know, not having enough strips and enough like uh, track suits, so you had to, you know, make sure you don't spill food on them because mm. if you want to wash it yourself, it's going to cost you, mm. kind of thing. So it was just like. Everything was the minimum and and basic, and I remember being there when we actually signed over to to have contracts for the year mm. and how big a deal about it was now. And then now it's just like, oh, a year contract, Great. yeah, yeah, it's just a standard deal.
0: Yeah, back then though, and I keep saying back then, but it's like even five years ago, you guys were still playing some internationals but in closed stadiums mm-hmm. where there's no one. The doors won't even gates weren't even open for anyone to come in what was that like having to do that and it wasn't that long ago that you were you were doing that
1: yeah it's kind of it's kind of crazy thinking about it I think the only time that we really got any kind of crowd is when we played before the Socceroos and Mm. that was maybe once or twice in in my Mm. recollection that we actually got to do that
0: was it because you couldn't pull a crowd or that hierarchy I guess didn't believe and didn't have faith that you could pull a crowd
1: I think it was we probably couldn't pull a crowd. We didn't really have the media following. It's also very expensive to bring a team over to Australia mm. and there was absolutely no way we could afford that unless it was, you know, some kind of link into mm. a, a tour here or, or something like that. And it was just probably pretty impossible to do that. Mm. Also we hadn't we hadn't done anything. We haven't done anything significant then. Mm. Um, where it was really, I guess, backed upon. I think it was the first time that we got out of a knockout round Mm. or I think it was we scored in the 2007 World Cup. Mm. I think it was the first time we won a game.
0: When did you win the Asian Cup though? 2010. 2010, Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: And I think we had the game with the Socceroos, I think I was – 09 or 08 yeah. so it was really we were just kind of like baby steps like it wasn't really anything yeah. significant happening then so you know it just was like oh you know yeah the, the girls are wanting to have year-long contracts that's a con- controversy yeah so yeah. to get bring out a, another team
0: <laughs> yeah yeah
1: Um, or to open up the stadium doors it was just always going to be an expense
0: what's it like to pull on the green and gold but then have to play in front of empty stadiums not because there's not a crowd, but because the gates aren't even open.
1: It was the norm. Um, yeah. You know, it was also where we went was always we travelled. It mm. was very rare that we were home. You know, all these other countries could afford to bring us over, so we went over.
2: Mm.
1: And for us it was like, oh, you know, we're going over here, so there's not going to be, unless they pick up a stream, it's not our problem mm. if it's, you know, not being shown back home. But, yeah, I just don't think there was any funds or any way for there to be looked at, oh, let's, you know, mm. build games back here.
0: You played in the U.S. from 2009. Mm-hmm. What was the big difference then that you saw from playing in the U.S.? What was it like playing there compared to playing back in Australia in the women's leagues?
1: Yeah, I got to go to the U.S. when it was the very first season of, um, gosh, that it was the WPS back then. Yeah. And my team, I'm telling you, was ridiculous. We had World Cup winners. We had Olympic medalists. <laughs> You know, in in my team there we had Megan Rapino who just got named yeah, Ballon d'Or. Yeah, yeah. We had the best Brazilian player. Mm. Um, it was crazy. <laughs> uh, and I was a 19-year-old and I was like, what am I doing here? Um, and I learned so much. I didn't play a minute, uh, which I didn't mind at all, but yeah. it was my first experience going overseas, being yeah. in a professional environment with all these, like, women that have given up their whole life to to pursue this, mm. and their countries believed in them. They won stuff. Mm. And for me to see that, I was like, wow, this is cool. This is, you know, ha- what it looks like to have a, a country invest in, in their women's team. Mm. Um, And that was really exciting that, you know, that was my first taste of it. Yeah. And then obviously now just the backing of sponsors and people that are
0: willing to invest over there is huge. For that investment, what difference do you see that that makes?
1: I think it just gives girls, you know, that they – they want that. They know that they can make a living out of it. Mm. So they're willing to put all their effort into that sport mm. to try and make it. And I think that's what you want to do. You want to leave no stone unturned and know that you've given it your all. Whether you make it or not, you know that there's nothing more that you can do. But I think when it gets to a point where you're like, can I afford it? Is mm. it enough? And mm. that's when girls don't, they don't pursue it. They don't, Mm. they can't because Mm. they gotta
0: live. (laughs) Yeah. What was it like then for the girl who grew up in the outback without (laughs) shoes (laughs) to then have this international professional sport life where you're going from country to country playing football? A few pinch me moments?
1: Oh yeah. I like, mum sends me videos sometimes of like Oh, Lydia growing up. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> don't ever show that to anybody. I'm <laughs> oh, like, I cannot believe that. Never would I have thought in my whole entire life that this would happen. So mm. it's it's like definitely very surreal.
0: What was the biggest adjustment that you had to make?
1: Oh, probably how I talk and how I act. Right.
0: Um, Why is that? In what way? Oh
1: Yeah, I mean, I had a twang. I, <laughs> I was very, very rough and, you know, indigenous slang here and there and you know Canberra (laughs) is definitely not like that at all so I had to learn very quickly one of my um like best friends over there I remember it was we we didn't become best friends yet it Mm. was like probably the first month that I was over in Canberra and we're about to go on a school trip Mm. and she saw me like digging in the ground and she recalls that she's like oh she's just a little bush kid like look at her (laughs) over there like not what is she doing? And she just was like, what is she doing? She couldn't understand. Um, And then, yeah, then we became best friends later on, but it was just crazy that, you know, I I had to adjust so much to, I guess, fit into into that lifestyle. Mm. But then also, it allowed me to find myself as well.
0: In terms of the women's game and the development that it's made, what are you most proud of when you look back at the development of the women's game in Australia?
1: I think, the media and I think the backing of the Federation. I remember when we were in Canada in 2015 and we were going through the knockout round and we had, I think it was was Channel 7, Mm. or some some Australian news crew came over and it was unheard of that we've ever had a news crew from Australia fly (laughs) somewhere just to film us and interview us. It was always, oh, can you pick this up? It'll be streamed back here or something. But it was you know they they came all this way to see us play, mm. and I was like, "Whoa, this never happens." Yeah. And then since then it was it's just been like, "Oh, we need you know a film crew here. Mm. The Olympics, we need to have this from film crew here. Mm. Oh, the girls qualified." Um. And it was just things are getting streamed and televised at you know family friendly times. People mm. are watching back at home. There's interviews the Federation believe in us, you know, they believe in equality. So mm. there's just this really big following and really big backing and that makes us perform better.
0: You don't have to wash your own undies or um, make sure you don't spill <laughs> anything on your um, tracksuits anymore. No,
1: no. <laughs> Have a big bib.
0: <laughs> and of course, we're on the brink now of finding out whether Australia and New Zealand will host the 2023 World Cup. Um, we're recording this Right before the announcement, so we don't want to jinx anything. But I can't help but think back to what you were saying about Kathy Freeman and seeing her do her thing and and win gold on that incredible stage called the Olympics. Do you think back now that, you know, what this event could do for little girls like little Lydia when she was 12 years old watching that?
1: Oh, I think it would be incredible. The amount of times I go overseas and I'm just like, oh, you just need to come visit Australia. (laughs) And, like, to have a major tournament here, Mm. I think Australians know how to host a tournament. We've done it many times for many different sports. Mm. And I think to have the world's best and the world game in Australia would be incredible. Mm. And the amount of people that you think that you're going to inspire, not just girls but boys but families, you know, I, I think it will do wonders for the game and for people in Australia. I just think it would be incredible, you know, seeing the support that the the women's cricket team got yeah. and people getting behind that. Yeah, it'd be it'd be amazing.
0: Does it blow your mind that you're now to many little girls what Kathy Freeman was to you?
1: Yeah, I that doesn't sink into me yet, mm. and I don't think it will until I'm maybe done. Because for me, I'm still that kid in Kalgoorlie.
0: Um can I we've talked a lot about your mum and your dad um they're really important to you but I do want to talk about about your dad and and what happened when you were fifteen mm-hmm. he sadly passed away can you take me back to that to that day and and what happened
1: yeah um so I think a few weeks before that he I got called out of school um and dad was not feeling the best and um I got uh, called out of school went straight to the hospital and I was like what's going on and they're like oh he's been diagnosed with cancer, um, but we think it's lymphoma and we can treat it, mm. so he'll be here, we'll get some chemo, um, and then, you know, we'll see how it progress. And he actually the next week went to Western Australia to do a wedding. <laughs> Funnily <laughs> enough, he was still working and doing weddings and yeah. um, preaching and stuff. So when he came back on the flight back, he actually had to be put on oxygen. Right. Um, so we landed, he went back in the hospital, um, and then came back home and it was okay. And then I remember, gosh, it was two weeks later that I got called out of school again. And I was like, oh no, what is it this time? Mm. So I went straight to the hospital again, but this time I went into urgent care. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I walked through the doors, I saw doctors around and I saw my mum and I just knew that, mm. I, I've never had emotion overcome me like that ever. Mm. You know, there's obviously, like, losing a game in a tournament. You know, it is devastating. But, like, I just – as soon as I walked in there, I just felt, like, this grief just wash over me. And then um, the doctors came over and just said, you know, he has, only has a day or two to live. It's that aggressive. Mm. Um, So, yeah, we, we had our final kind of words to each other. Mum and the doctors left the room and me and Dad just chatted. Mm. Um, and he just said he's just so proud of me and he'll always look after me and be looking down on me and, you know, no matter what I do, it it doesn't matter because, you know, he loves me. Mm. Um, And that was kind of our our last conversation together. Mm. And then mum was in and out of hospital. I had um, my school friends come and say goodbye because they were a big part of our life as well. Mm. Dad used to go out to all the school camps um, and teach the kids about, you know, what it is to be Aboriginal. He loved everyone. Yeah. So my my school friends came and said goodbye. A couple of my soccer friends came as well. And then basically, yeah, uh, we went home a day and a half after I last chatted to him, and we just got closed, get changed, go back to the hospital. Mm. And then whilst we are home, we got a phone call um, from our, one of our really good friends. It was just like, you need to come right now. Mm and so we made it just in time and you know by this time it was morphine had taken over so mm-hmm. everything was incoherent and mm. he was in and out of it so yeah that was that was about it it was fast and it was really devastating mm. and probably for a good year after i didn't feel anything yeah i really cannot I'd, i don't even know what happened on my 16th birthday right because i just have completely shut down yeah. all those memories from that. And I just think I just went numb mm. for a good
0: year. Yeah. Did you still play sport during that time? Yeah, definitely still played.
1: I went back to school a week later. Um, Everyone was like, what are you doing <laughs> yeah, here? why so
0: soon? How so soon? Um,
1: and I think it was just because my dad was just like, I just don't want you to stop. You know, you've, mm. like, it's going to be hard, but, like, I believe in you. I'm proud of you. Mm. I don't want you to stop and let this overcome you. Mm. Um, so I think I just pushed aside all emotion and I was pretty numb and just went back to school, went back to sport. And it wasn't until, you know, a year later that me and mum, we were avoiding talking to each other because we're both so scared of making each other cry. Yeah. And then it was a year later that we actually sat down and were like, we miss him Mm. and actually allowed ourselves to kind of feel again. Mm. And then it was that time that I made, you know, the national team, (laughs) So it's kind of crazy that it's almost like all that frustration and grief that I didn't feel, it went into what I was about to become a part of. Mm. But then in saying that, obviously, after, I had to have some grief.
0: <laughs> yeah. Still miss him?
1: Oh, yeah, every every day. And especially now, there's obviously a lot of talk about, you know, Indigenous rights and, you know, that kind of thing. And yeah. I just was like, oh, I would have loved my dad to to be here to see this and talk, because right now I'm getting a lot of my information from my mum and my family, mm. which you know it's not coming straight from my dad. So that's probably the hardest thing about it.
0: Because we're talking about being a bush pastor and and his upbringing, but he he was also um, he was an elder and he, he he crossed that political divide as well. He um, well educated politicians mm-hmm. on Indigenous issues as well and was deeply respected across all cultural divides, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah, he actually had his um, moral service um, in um, the Great Hall in Canberra, Mm. which at the time only one other person had it. There was over a 1,000 people there, politicians, Mm. the tent embassy, people from school, Mm. sport, um, church. There was that many people there to come and kind of, you know, remember him and Mm. um, speak fondly of him. But, you know, he never wanted anyone to feel... Like it's their fault for anything that they are mm. um he wanted to educate everyone and just love everyone. Mm. One example was you know we being in Kalgoorlie, there's a lot of brothels
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you know every other week we'd go down there he'd pick flowers from the garden and he'd just go and give like the women flowers and just mm. talk to them and just treat them like humans, yeah, and you know he he went to prisons to talk to prisoners and mm. He interacted with the lowest of the low mm-hmm. and I got to witness that mm-hmm. and I think that's why he was so respected.
0: You talk about you your dad was here at the moment with what's going on in the world and all the demonstrations that we've seen with Black Lives Matter and demonstrations here in Australia as well. What kind of impact has that had on you watching these demonstrations and, and, and being involved as an Indigenous Australian?
1: Yeah, for me it, it's, it's definitely hard seeing, you know, how many people are, are hurt by it. I definitely can't speak on behalf of anyone except myself Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously for me being lighter skinned I haven't gone through a lot of I guess racial abuse you know without people knowing that I'm Indigenous Mm. and then obviously traveling and not being in Australia a lot I'm I'm, you know jet setting and playing you know the best sport I can Mm. and, and for myself so I definitely can't speak on anyone else but myself but it is it's hard to see and it's hard to hear some stories
2: mm.
1: i think it's just all about education it's mm. all about you know listening to each other and i think once you listen to someone like i take my mum for example she didn't she never came here and integrated into indigenous life thinking that she knew better yeah yeah and she, she's an american that worked on wall street and grew up in the south so she just came with an open mind, she learned everything she could and you know, she she never thought that she knew better. Mm. She she wanted to to learn. And I think that's the the biggest point, we just have to listen to each other and allow someone to talk without judgment.
0: We're seeing across the world as well, a lot of athletes use their platform to be able to take a stand and um and send a strong message. Colin Kaepernick and we've seen Adam Goods in Australia, how important and do you feel that? As well, using your platform as an athlete to be able to educate, to be able to stand up for what you believe in. How important is that?
1: I think so. I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, athletes are human and I think everyone feels. And, you know, we we do have to perform on the sporting pitch, but also now a lot of athletes being able to say things and verbalise other issues that take them away from the athlete and make them a person. Mm. I think it's really powerful because, you know, now we actually have a voice and now we can actually, you know, contribute into things that are are passionate and are worldwide and are issues. And I think the more athletes I can do that, it's great. So, yeah, I am definitely passionate about, you know, showing that side, the human side and and not just the the athlete side of Mm. it.
0: Speaking of platforms and being able to use your platform to create change, Um, your book, your children's (laughs) book is creating change, isn't it? And you're using your platform. Tell me about Saved. I love this book.
1: Yeah, um, well, Saved is basically, a, I guess, a short novel of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I actually got approached by Alan Unwin and they heard my story and was like, whoa, that's a children's book without like you even – Trying, yeah, right. And my agent and I spoke about it before, and was like, "We need to think about how. What's a good way to tell your story?" Mm. And the fact that they picked it up right away as a children's book, mm-hmm. we would have never found that path. So it's just interesting how, yeah, you know, publishers think it's it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, so they were like, "Can you write a a draft?" And sure enough, I did, <laughs> and I already had the. Talking animals
0: and, you know. So what's it about, tell, for people who, who want to go out and get it for their kids?
1: Well, Saved is about um, the the joy of sport, perseverance mm-hmm. and, um, you know, handling adversity along the way. Mm. Um, so it's about little Lydia growing <laughs> up in the desert <laughs> and trying out all these sports uh, until she finds one that she likes yeah, and one that she is good at. And it's just about having fun with her friends, which are the desert animals. So it's it's very roughly based on my life, but it's, it's
0: pretty true. <laughs> <laughs> Talking animals? Yeah. And what do you want kids to take from the book then?
1: I just want them to take that, you know, it doesn't matter if they're good at something, as long as they're having fun mm. and they're enjoying what they're doing. Mm. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks, as long as they're enjoying themselves And they're learning something from it. I think that's the main thing. Life's too short to be reliant on other people's opinions.
0: We finish off every podcast by asking our guests what message you would send to your little 10-year-old self. And this is an interesting time for you because it's just before you moved to Canberra. So Mm. you were still your bush kid, outback kid living in Kalgoorlie.
1: You know what? Sporting-wise, I wouldn't tell myself anything because I think all the highs and lows that I've been through... Mm. It wouldn't have made me where I am today and it wouldn't have driven me to succeed more. Mm. Um, the thing that I would say in terms of life is probably tell the people that you love them all the time mm. and i tell, like, appreciate them, do as much as you can for the people around that you care about as, as much as possible because you just don't know how long they're going to be on earth. Mm. And I think that's the one thing that I'm telling myself now, mm. the amount of people that I've reconnected with, just to be like, oh, hey, what's going on? You actually mm. were like a really important part of my life, you know, as growing up or, you know, at this point. So I think that's, that's the one thing that I would definitely tell myself.
0: It's a beautiful message, an important message. You've got so much. There's so much every little girl and boy from all backgrounds can learn from you, Lydia Williams. Thank you so much for sharing your story with On Her Game.
1: Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
0: On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Darcy Thompson, executive producer, Jennifer Goggin.